Hey there, everybody. So we've got another episode of Lifestyle Medicine today, but part of what I'm going to be doing with Lifestyle Medicine is something a little different. So I'm still going to have my guests. I'm still going to be interviewing people, but some of the feedback that I've gotten from people also is that they they essentially want to hear more from me, which is kind of a weird place to be, to be honest. Um, I really enjoy highlighting and featuring people, and that's not going to stop. But at the same time, um, I've also gotten the guidance to maybe do some some solo talks that are a podcast episode in and of themselves about a specific topic. And so I chewed on that and I think I'm going to start doing that. So I'll say this, that these episodes are going to be peppered throughout the lifestyle medicine schedule. It's not going to be perfectly every other week. It's not going to be um, any kind of you know set exact schedule. But what's going to start to happen is you guys are going to start to see episodes like this that are also uh, just me talking about a specific topic, and then also the interviews with my amazing guests. So that being said, there were a lot of different things to sit with today, and I thought about the wheelhouse of the things that I could talk about within my platform. But after doing a little fishing and reaching out to my network of people, some the common thread that actually came back was some personal stories and things that have either personally happened to me or experiences I've had that were transformative, beneficial, and that might be relevant for people to hear. And so the first one that came to mind was the story that I have touched on in various episodes, but I've talked about it with a number of guests, but it's usually a passing story. And so I want to dedicate this episode to specifically this this particular story. And what that was, was me reversing my impotence at 21. So before I go on with the story, I just want to say was impotent, was being the operative word, you guys. So I'm I'm not still impotent. But at 21, this was a real thing for me. And so I'm going to lay this out and give the context and how I reversed it. And the gamut and the hoops that I had to run through to figure this out was really difficult because at 21 as a man to be experiencing that was the equivalent of you know the Roman Empire falling it was the worst possible thing at that stage of my life to feel and to be dealing with and it really impacted my mental health it really impacted my spiritual health. I felt terrible about it. It was not a good place to be. But the seeds of this were rooted in something. And I'm going to get to that, what that was. But at the time, I didn't know that. And so what was happening, just to give context, I was 21. I was in my first real romantic relationship. And while navigating that new terrain of being in a truly intimate relationship with someone and actually being in partnership and cultivating that for whatever reason something was happening where whenever I was about to have sex with my partner I was about to engage with her physically whenever that would happen I would be overcome with this anxiety there was almost a panic and I was my body was fully ready and on point, which means basically that, you know, to be blunt, I was able to essentially have an erection prior to sex. And then as soon as sex was on the on the table where it was about to happen, my body would freeze up and I would just feel the pit of my stomach knot up and it would just turn inward. And 
I was really dumbfounded by that process because I thought, okay, my body is physically working. It's not that I'm incapable of, of doing this. Something is happening when the act is about to commence that's, that's causing problems. And a lot of people will just say, well, great, that's just performance anxiety. You know, you're, you're just getting in, in your head about it and you're overthinking it. But it wasn't, it wasn't that. And, I, and the reason I, I know that is because I was going to therapy. I started to see a therapist about this very thing. And I started to attack it from all fronts. So I saw a urologist to actually get my, you know, my plumbing checked to make sure everything was all right. I started seeing a, um, a regular traditional therapist where I was just talking about my problems and they were, they sort of had a specialty in, um, in sexual dynamics, sexuality, and just, you know, issues, sexual health. So I was doing that. I was eating really well. I was seeing a nutritionist. I was really proactive in trying to figure out what was going on. But it wasn't just performance anxiety. It was more than that because the emotional terrain that I was um, embarking upon when this would happen was brutal. I would, you know, have one of these instances happen with my then girlfriend at the time, and I would feel bad for days after the emotional turmoil that it would put me through. And, um, you know, no slam to my girlfriend at the time, but she also wasn't the most mature 21 and wasn't able to process that I was going through something emotional. She took it very personally that it was about her and that it was, uh, you know, her shortcoming, her, you know, her pitfall. And understandably, we were 21. So that's like, again, that's no slam on her that she wasn't able to get to that place, but she just wasn't in that place, no matter how much I tried to explain it, because at 21, for most people, that's just not a problem. So what started to happen was um, this happened for about six months where um, it was getting chronically worse. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then there was anxiety. Then I think it actually did turn into performance anxiety where I thought, if I'm about to potentially have sex, I know this is going to happen. And then I would psych myself out. And so this cycle just got worse. For six months, I was walking this path and it just got darker and darker and darker and darker. And it was it was awful to just be fully blunt. And at that time, I had been training, interesting the timing of life and how these things cross over, but I had been training with Chuck Duran out of Chico, California in my first formal style of martial arts, which which was Kuksul Do which is sort of a derivative or offshoot of Kuksul Wan, which is the more mainstream name for it. So I was studying Kuksul Do. I was going through this hugely transformative um, process with training martial arts for the first time, and specifically with a teacher of Chuck's caliber, who to this day, after years of experience, I still think is the best style instructor for me, and um, is just an amazing practitioner of the art, truly gifted athletically, has insight, knows himself, and delivers the art in an elegant way, in, in a very um, applicable way. So I was studying the art and was being radically transformed at the physical level for one, but the way it made me feel, the way it made my heart feel, the way it made me engage life, the way it made me look at things, it was just, it was like a spiritual B12 shot. It was remarkable to be doing that and to be studying it with Chuck. So I had been training with him for about four months, and I would say that my, I can't remember exactly the timing, I'd be butchering it, but I know the start of Kuksul training, 
and more or less my my um, my duration or my you know this 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 time frame of when I was having this impotence problem, they coincided. They were close, and so as I would go, my only outlet really to sort of work out this turmoil that I was going through was to train martial arts. The physicality was one of my saving graces in terms of me just keeping my sanity because I thought here's something that I'm relatively good at and that was good for me and I felt good about. So I stayed with it and I kept doing it. But one of the consistent threads that Chuck kept talking about during training was this idea of what you would call internal internal energy. And at the time, at 21, while I was always kind of into, you know, the esoteric and I'd always had a bent for that kind of thing, it still sort of sounded like superfluous new age theory. But I didn't really care. I felt so good that I was just going with the notion and I was going with the motions and I wasn't really challenging it too much. But he was always talking about internal energy, the relationship between intent, where um, what the Chinese I found out later call yi, our focus, where that goes directs our chi. In Korean, they call it gi. In Japanese, they call it ki. But your your bioelectric current, how much of your bioelectricity is funneled to an area depends on where you focus. Like where your focused mind goes, your, your chi or your ki or your gi goes to. It's a basic idea in Chinese medicine. Very true in martial arts, uh, true with things in life as well, right? What we focus on, we sort of gravitate and move towards. So this idea, and he would talk about this, and he was always talking about the relationship between breathing and how well our chi flowed, how well our bioelectric current moves through our body, depending on how well we breathe. And so he was always dropping these little tidbits of information about breathing, internal energy, body mechanics, and he would talk about the emotions too. And it was always sort of a side tangent or a side comment, but it was enough that it it got a hold of me and it and it, it planted a seed. And so after I had seen the urologist, after I'd been going to counseling, after I'd been doing everything, after I'd been taking every herb, horny goat weed, Damiana, everything that I could read about to try to fix this problem, I was at my wit's end and I was about to throw in the towel. I was just not, and I don't mean suicide or anything like that, but I was just about to give up and I was about to end the relationship because I thought I'm not able to deal with this right now and it's not really fair to put my partner through this and I'm just a mess. Apparently something's up. So I end up going to Chuck and um, one night after training, I said, look, I'm really struggling with something and I know we've only known each other for a few months, but um, I'm struggling with sexual performance anxiety and I'm essentially I'm not always impotent but at the at the moment it counts when I'm about to have sex with my partner I I, I can't perform and I'm I'm being overridden with this feeling of anxiety and um despair and sort of a, a grief like it just feels terrible and it's like this pit this heavy black hole of a rock lodges into my stomach and I just I freeze up and he without batting an eye, just listened to me. He said, okay. He said, well, thanks for telling me. And he said, well, I have, I have a question for you. And he says, just um, tell me if you can if you can feel this. And so he put his hand on my chest. He turned his hand sideways like this for the people that are watching. And he put his hand very gently onto my chest. And when he did that, you know, it's one of those, one of those experiences that you, I look back and I question it now. Like, did I really feel that? But I know that I did 
because it stayed with me. And what it felt like, it felt like a very gentle warm water came out of his hand and it kind of flowed down and moved towards my belly. It was a subtle sensation, but definitely palpable. I felt it and it was real in the moment. And I said, yeah. And, and, and I said, yeah, I, I felt something go down to my stomach and he, he just sort of nodded and said, okay, come back. Um, let's, let's, let's give you a treatment Wednesday night. At the time, that was the longest night of training too. I think that was two, I'd have to, I can't remember, two or two and a half hours that we would train um, compared to the 90 minutes that we would typically train. It was a longer, Wednesday nights were like a, an extra long class. So he said, after that night, come back and we'll work on you. So that coming Wednesday, I did the training, worked out very hard, um, was very sweaty. Everybody left and he said, okay, let's, let's get you on the table and let's, um, let's check you out. So he lays me on the table and the first thing he does is he doesn't, doesn't touch my body. He takes his hand and he scans over my body. He lays down and he just kind of maybe three to five inches over my body and he just scanned all over like he was attempting to feel something. And so I laid there. He went over this various aspects of my body and he got to my left hip. And right above my left hip, sort of um, if people that are hip to anatomy, the iliac crest, the top of the hip bone, basically, if you were to move inward towards my belly button, maybe three inches, it was right about there. And he put his hand over there and he kind of poked and prodded a little bit in the area. And then he just really honed in on this one spot and he, he dug his fingers in very slowly. And when he dug his fingers in, my whole body started to seize. And I don't mean convulsing violently, but I actually started to get tense and my body was guarding in the same way that if someone presses on an area that you don't like, your body sort of tenses up to, 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 to defend it or to push away. I was doing that and he said, does this physically hurt? And I said, no. I said, it's very strange. It doesn't physically hurt, but it makes me really uncomfortable. And he said, okay. And he just stayed with that pressure. He didn't move. And as he held it, my body and my anxiety started to ratchet up. It started to just elevate and get higher and stronger and deeper. And I started to just feel something welling up inside of me and I, and I didn't like it. It didn't feel good. And then he dug in firm. Right about that time, he dug in firm, not to the point of causing physical injury or bruising, but firm enough. Um, <laughs> I remember thinking, I was like, that's the penetration or the grip of a martial artist. <laughs> like it was, there was a martial intent behind it. There was something, I don't want to say aggressive because that wasn't, that's not the right word for it, but it was definitely had intention. It had a very real focus. And when he dug in, I felt it. And then my body started to shake. And I don't mean shake in the sense that I was convulsing like big movements. My body, the best way I can describe it, because I've only felt it twice in my life and both times were under the hands of Chuck Duran. But that first time, what it felt like, the best way I can describe it is if, if you've ever heard a bee fly by your head, the bzzz, that buzzing or a bumblebee, there's a very real buzzing quality. It felt like the entire surface of my skin started to buzz. And actually just under the surface, like it, like there were you know 50,000 bees under my skin and it started to buzz. And it, it did feel electrical. It felt like I had been plugged into a current a little bit 
and I could hear it in my ears. It was a and it was just making this noise and it was very strange. I thought, what in the hell is this? This is a sensation unlike anything I've ever felt. And I'm a pretty body sensitive guy. You know, I, I mean, I do body work. I move my body. I'm, a, I'm athletic, not a super athlete by any means, but definitely coordinated. And I'm hip to my body. I know its rhythms. I know its movements. I know its capacities. I know how far I can push it. And I have not felt anything like this. And then as he held it, that vibration got stronger and stronger. And then I started to bawl hysterically. And I started, um, in the words of, of Larissa Conte, uh, who was on um, my podcast before talking about grief rituals, she said there's a difference between crying and wailing. And what I proceeded to do was wail. And the sounds I was making um, were were just... I remember thinking I was almost embarrassed by the noises I was making because I was sobbing and it was uncontrollable and I was letting out these big moans and I just could not stop crying. And he held he held that point very tightly while I was going through this. And then at the breaking point where I thought I couldn't take any more, I'll never forget this, he, he was digging and then he slid his hands really quickly. Like he just... It was like he had gripped something and it felt like he kind of threw something out of my body, but it was a fast movement, just quick as hell. And when he did that, I felt um, the bottom of my feet get kind of sweaty. And it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't like they were soaked, but I felt the moisture in my feet kind of kick up. And then I still cried and the buzzing was still happening. And then he just put a blanket over me. He turned the lights down and he let me cry there for about 45 minutes. He just went into his office. He left me in this giant dojo with dim lights. And I just sat there in that warehouse of a dojo that he had, which was so cool. And I just cried and cried and cried. And as I was going through that, I remember just having all of these emotions kick up and all of these things and these ideas run through my head. And then after I stopped crying and there was sort of a lull in the storm, he walked out. He sat next to me and put his hand on my on my uh, my leg while I was still, you know, sort of kind of coming to and still kind of sniffling. And he said to me, he said, look, he said, crying like this doesn't, I get choked up even thinking about it. He said, it doesn't make you less of a man. It makes you more of one. And he said, there's no, he said, it, it's, it's, it requires a lot as a man to, to go into this terrain, to cry. And when we started to talk about it, the thing that came up, and I had mentioned to him, but I had glossed over and sort of forgotten, was that my dad had died two years prior. I was 21. My dad had died when I was 19. And my dad died in a really brutal car accident. It was a really, um, it was a really ugly car accident. There was a lot of carnage and a lot of violence in, in, the, in the actual accident. My dad was driving in the fast lane on I-5 on April 27th, 2001. He was driving in his pla- black Porsche Boxster heading toward to, to work in the fast lane, doing about 80, which sounded like about my dad driving a Porsche. And he was driving in the fast lane and a semi-truck on the opposite side of the road changed lanes and accidentally ran into an Acura Integra. And as that happened, um, the semi started to fishtail, lost control, 
it ended up crashing through and over the center median into oncoming traffic. My dad happened to be the first car right there. And as my dad hit the side of that semi, there was a second semi behind my dad that essentially squashed him from the front and back. He hit the front of this one semi and then the semi behind him caught him in the center and it just completely crunched the entire left front side of my dad's Porsche, spun him out. So I'm just giving little side details to the story because um, this all kind of ties into it. These are part of the emotional themes of what I was struggling with. I struggled with the carnage, the idea of how violently my dad had died. And so in this accident, my dad dies instantly, which was the blessing. Um, he went out quickly. They said he probably never knew what hit him. It was just too fast. Uh, happened all too fast. Traffic backed up for eight hours, 14 car pile up. My dad is the only person who died. So when we started to talk, Chuck, I had told Chuck this uh, in passing and I just had not connected the dots, but I had told him that since my dad died, I had only cried one, twice. The day I found out, I cried. I, I, I found out from my mom when I was in my dorm. I looked in the mirror and the look on my face, I'll never forget. It was like someone I didn't know, but I just cried for about 15 seconds and then it just stopped. I mean, it was like a, like a goddamn switch, you know? And it, that was the strangest thing to have my emotions completely shut off from hearing that news. And I thought, why am I not crying? That's weird. But I just stopped. Then a week later, I eulogized my dad. I was 19. He had 700, over 700 people show up to his uh, celebration of life, which was incredible. And I eulogized him. And uh, that night when I went to bed, I cried for about 20 minutes. After that, two years straight, no tears, no processing, no crying. And so when I was talking to Chuck about this, as we, we started to kind of open up this dialogue after the treatment, he said, look, Gray, he said, you know, to, um, to lose a father, someone that you were close to, someone that you loved, someone you got along with. We had our issues, but collectively, he was a wonderful man. I loved him to death. And he said, when, when you lose somebody like that, when that happens, he says, the emotion has to be processed. And if you don't process it, it's just a matter of time before it finds you. And he said, you know, we all store it in somewhere in the body. Sometimes it's into an organ. Sometimes it's into a, a joint you were storing that there. He's like, I've worked on enough bodies to know what that feels like. And he said, you know, that left untouched for 30, 40 years, that event, that, that emotion, which is, you know, quote unquote, energy in motion, emotion. He said that will essentially stagnate into an area of the body an, an area that the body has felt safe to compartmentalize it in. He says, and then over time, if it left is not addressed, that energy will eventually materialize, maybe into a cyst, maybe into a tumor, maybe into a cancer, maybe into some larger problem. But eventually, that energy, that emotion, will become material. And that's what we call disease. And he said that's a part of it. That's, you know, sometimes it's environmental toxins, sometimes it's whatever, but it can be emotional toxicity or um, not processing our emotions. And so we talked for about another 45 minutes, and he just very lovingly became sort of the father a father figure for me i mean in that in that in that motion where he was saying like it's okay to cry it's okay to to process this stuff and to feel it and to fully surrender to it and to let it crush you because if you don't it's going to bite you later and he said so 
He said, I'm really proud of you for saying something to me, for coming to me. And, um, you know, you're on your way and, you know, keep your head up and your heart open. And it was a, one of the most loving, compassionate, transformational and powerful experiences I've ever had in my life. At 21, to have that happen and to have someone step in to my life after losing my father and to meet me with that heart and those words forever changed me. And I'm to this day, I'm eternally grateful. So Chuck, if you're listening, I love you. And <laughs> thank you so much for, um, for, for being that person and for helping me. And so when I went through this, heard about it, um, you know, heard about the dialogue from Chuck about, you know, my dad. And it really felt true as I was talking about it. I thought, God, I've just, there's this grief that I haven't touched. I haven't explored. I haven't processed. I haven't been proactive in digesting it. I didn't know I even needed to. I thought I could just sort of suppress it and move on. So treatment wraps up. He gives me a hug. My girlfriend at the time was living in Sacramento. And so um, that night, for the first time, I just felt good. I felt like this big load off had been taken off of me. And I drove to Sacramento, and for the first time, I thought, you know, I don't even give a shit if we have sex. I just want to see my girlfriend, and I just want to say hi to her. And I just want to do that. Like, I just want to go. And so I drove on a Wednesday night from Chico. I had class the next day at like 2. But um, drive to Sacramento. We go have a nice dinner, and for whatever reason, she was kind of in the same spot. She, she Sadly, she had sort of given up and been like, yeah, my boyfriend's just kind of impotent at the moment, so I'm just going to forego the sexual activity, and I'm just going to enjoy his company. I have no idea how she got there or why that night, but we were both in the same space. I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's great. We go have a nice dinner. Great conversation. We go back to her place, and... Um, I, you know, I give her a hug and, you know, long story short, I don't want to get into too many details, but the, the, the bottom line was that I started to feel sexual vitality kind of pumping through me and we started to get physical and sure enough, I was able to perform for the first time in six months and not just perform, but I mean, I was, you know, I was on point. Let's just say everything was working fully and I remember you know, we were sitting there laying afterwards and, you know, she asked, she said, I'll never forget this. She says, did you take like the little blue pill? Did you take Viagra? Did you, did you take a pill to do, to, to fix this? And I said, no. She's like, so what happened? Because this gray has not been here for about six months. So what, what happened? And I said, I cried. <laughs> I fucking cried really hard earlier tonight. And I unearthed the grief I had been sitting on around my dad's death that I hadn't processed. She didn't take that too well, you know, God love her. But she uh, she was like, huh, okay. But I mean, she just was not of that attitude or mindset. And moreover, she hadn't had the experience. So it was very difficult for her to plug into at 21. Um, no slam on her again. It was just where she was. But she, she heard it and was like, okay, cool. You know, whatever. If it works, it works. And so it, it opened up this door. That experience, um, from that point forward, you know, I didn't have a problem with impotence anymore after that. I had one spell come up um, later, about two years later, but I kind of knew the mechanism and really what it boiled down to. It wasn't about my dad, but it was about repressed emotion. And it, when I would get in touch with my emotion and I would cry, this issue would go away from me. 
And I think this is a really important thing to talk about because some men go through some kind of erectile dysfunction throughout their life, especially as men get older and testosterone levels drop, it's going to happen. Some of us, it's happened because of anxiety. Some of it's happened because um, of, of like diet, you know, stressors that we're going through. But sometimes it's emotional. And for me, it was emotional. And that's where it manifested. And we all process our grief differently. We all compartmentalize our emotions differently. For me, it just so happened that when I compartmentalized my grief and I repressed my grief and my pain around my dad, where it manifested was sexual anxiety and impotence. That's me. For other people, it's different. They might have chronic migraines. I mean, we, the body is a very complex system and we all have different strengths and deficiencies. So our body is going to try to protect itself in different ways, as does the mind. And I think it's just, it's a really important thing for men to consider. And I think for people in general to think about that if we have a stasis in emotion and we're not processing the difficult things that come down the pike, we can really encounter some very gnarly physical manifestations. And this was mine. And outside of that, you know, the, the light at the end of this tunnel was that in going through that experience and seeing a urologist, seeing a psychologist, seeing an herbalist, trying all of these things and then to have the solution be so fucking simple that I just had to cry to remedy my impotence blew my mind. To this day, it still blows my mind. I thought, how could I have gone through all of this stuff and the solution was so simple? Just feel. <laughs> feel the pain. And the life gates open. So when that happened, I, I, from that point forward, for one, I listened to Chuck a lot more in the context of, of training. His tutelage and his approach to teaching, I, I was I was wide open now. My ears were open. I was hip to it. I was like, okay, homeboy knows some shit. And I'm going to listen to him. Doesn't mean he's a god. Doesn't mean he's infallible. Doesn't mean that he's perfect. Because he's not. Like any person. He's got his flaws, just like me and everyone else. But I was listening. It validated the efficacy of his approach and his medicine. And so I listened to him and the martial arts got deeper and I had a better I had a better dialogue with martial art training as a result of that. And it also planted the seed for the very path that I am walking today. That experience opened my mind and I had direct palpable experience with the relationship between the mind, body, and emotions and how, the, how those things relate and how they connect in real time. If I hadn't had that experience with Chuck, I would have never known that emotions can have such a demonstrable effect on the physical. And up till that point, it had been new age fluff. It had been new age theory for me. It was like, yeah, emotions, okay, mind and body. It's a cool theory and I think there's some merit to it, but I hadn't have it uh, impact me so heavily and then to have someone essentially come in and press the button and fix it. So... It put me on the path. It always opened the dialogue between the mind-body connection from that point forward. And that's what put me on the, the map. That's what I thought, you know, I, I'm really intrigued by this concept. And it changed how I approached everything from that point forward in terms of diet, friendships, uh, partners. Everything was different as a result of that. And it did lead me to the healing arts. I mean, that, that experience got me into Chinese medicine. or It was a driving force, a very strong driving force. And to, to stick with this, because that one experience where I had an emotional release and have, you know, impotence reversed. It's fucking mind-boggling. I mean, straight up, it's just mind-boggling. And I think it's a story 
Um, it's a story I like telling. I have the deepest and utmost respect and reverence for Chuck Duran. And I also think it's really important for people to consider it because sometimes I think a story is more personal than theory. That's true in my life. It's true in a lot of people's life. But I'm always saying that um, experience trumps dogma and theory. And up till this point, this idea was dogma and theory. But then I had a direct experience and it forever changed me and it put me onto the path I am today. And I have, um, you know, I haven't looked back. I've loved where I am. It's been difficult, but it's been a really cool path and it wouldn't have happened if I had not had that experience. So for today, that is the, uh, the solo episode of me talking about how I reversed my impotence at 21 through crying. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys got some value out of it and I will see you next time. Thanks a bunch.